Several years ago, Time magazine carried a story about a certain controversy that raged in Waterloo, Iowa. It was in a courthouse, and it was over this question, what is a Christian? It all started with a local doctor who was rather wealthy. He had died. And as they were reading the will, they came across a portion of it that he had left a large sum of money, well, for for Christians in the town. Specifically, and I'll quote this, to persons who believe in the fundamental principles of the Christian religion and in the Bible, and who are endeavoring to propagate the same. Well, when the will became public, you, you can imagine that a dispute grew over who actually was their Christians in the town. And lawsuits were filed and counter-lawsuits. They all were wanting a piece of this doctor's money. So finally, over process of some legal a- attributes and whatnot else, it became the court's decision to decide, in essence, who was Christian enough to get this money. Well, ministers from the town, from all the denominations and all the religious groups, were brought together to appear before the judge to see if they were in agreement of what exactly it meant by Christianity's fundamental principles. What were they? What, how could you tell a Christian? Now, in that group, it was represented by all, all, really everyone that could be, Baptists, uh, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, You name it, every denomination, every flavor of Christianity was there trying to say, this is what Christianity is like. So as you can imagine, it's probably a great difference of opinion for this court. And I'd love to have been there for part of that discussion, whenever they actually broke down, here's what it is, here's what it means to be a Christian. As you probably know, there are still quite a variety of opinions on what makes a Christian, what is a Christian, or even what is not a Christian. You know, many people say that, that being a Christian has something to do with the country you live in. We call America a country that is founded on Christianity, or a Christian nation even. So maybe that does it for us. Maybe that means we're Christian. Or maybe uh, with some people they define Christian as what political party you uh, support. You support the GOP, then you're a real Christian. Maybe some, it's your family you're born in. My parents were. Aren't I by right? Or even some people refer to themselves as Christian by default. You see, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, I'm not a Hindu, I'm not Jew. I must be Christian. Makes sense, doesn't it? And then some others, and this one kind of hits home a little bit on me, will define their Christianity by their particular denomination. Baptists might say we have it right. It wasn't too long ago that uh, Church of Christ were the only ones going to heaven. At least that's what I heard. But I'll say this. Just because you're a member of the Church of Christ does not mean that you're a Christian. You can be in this building and, not, and wear that name and not be one. So what is it about a Christian that you will know? How are you going to know who a Christian is? How did this court know? Well, according to the Bible, there are some things that others should know about Christianity. And I stress that the other people will see about Christianity. It's not stuff necessarily within us. It's going to be stuff 
that in our text as we're reading in Acts 11, that others recognize us as Christians. So what are these things? What are these evidences of being a Christian? Well, first of all, Christians should be known for sharing the gospel. They speak out. Let's read in Acts 11, verse 19. Meanwhile, the believers who had been scattered during the persecution after Stephen's death traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch of Syria. They preached the word of God, but only to the Jews. However, some of the believers who went to Antioch from Cyprus and Cyrene began preaching to Gentiles about the Lord Jesus. The power of the Lord was with them, and a large number of these Gentiles believed and turned to the Lord. This passage begins in verse 19, reminding us what happened at the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, when Stephen, who, who we know as the first martyr, had given a defense for his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, had given his defense for Christianity, why he was a Christian, gave that defense, upset the Jews, they stoned him and killed him. And from that day, there was this, this persecution of the Christians there in Jerusalem. And so these Christians wanted to seek safe haven. So they fled. And the scripture tells us, Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, these are distant places that they're fleeing to. They're trying to get away from this understanding, this, this, uh, this horrible deed that is happening with martyrdom. But the thing is, as we discussed whenever I, I dealt with that text before in a, a in previous sermon, that... That was a horrible act. Stephen's death was horrible, but it, God used it. God used it to take his will, which his will was to spread the gospel out to the ends of the earth, to every nation, as the Great Commission says. And so whenever they left, they finally spread out to all these nations. So God used what the enemy had meant for bad. He turned it into good. And as these Christians were fleeing, they didn't just go underground, though. They took the gospel with them. The text says that they first preached the word of God, but only to Jews in verse 19. Well, that makes sense. We talked about last week how, how that is just the Jewish understanding is that Gentiles were dogs. You don't go to them. You don't associate with them. There are certain cleanly rituals that you would have to go through after even touching one of them. So it makes sense that they only went to Jews, but then... There were some, they knew what was in their heart. They, they, they couldn't stop. They couldn't stop speaking out. Christians spread as far north as Antioch. Now let me give you, just to put this in perspective, Antioch is about 350 miles north of Jerusalem. That is quite a journey to take on foot. Or if they were lucky enough to have on carriage, this is how far they are fleeing from Jerusalem to get out. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, just behind Rome and Alexandria. So as you can imagine, in the Roman Empire, Antioch had a lot of clout. This was a big city. This was one of the most populated, which means that it was a highly religious city. You see, the Roman Empire, whenever they had a city that was, that was a big metropolitan area that was close to the heart of Rome. It was very religious. It had all the worship of all the gods, but especially the worship of Caesar. You see, Caesar was supposed to be a god on earth, or at least a son of a god. And so every prominent city had worship for Caesar. 
So Antioch would be no different. It was very, very religious. And Christians then fled from Jerusalem to this pagan metropolis of Antioch. Now there were some Christians, as I was saying earlier, that just could not hold this news in. They had this new, this good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised from the dead, and they just couldn't hold it in. So they started talking to everyone that they knew, Greeks or the Gentiles or at least non-Jewish people. They started spreading it that way. In verse 20, there's a word that says they began to preach to the, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. That really gives the wrong connotation. Really, the idea of it, that NIV translated it as speaking. They began to speak to, the, to those around them. This really, it gives that picture then that they weren't standing up in front of people on the marketplace and just shouting out and preaching from the marketplace and being good orators and just giving good defenses. It gives more so the connotation that it was normal conversation everyday contacts, people that they walked by, they talked to. You know, we're not, we can do that, right? That's not too hard. We talk to people all the time. We talk about sports, we talk about weather, we talk about how their day's been, maybe some new bit of news that it touches us, whatever it may be, we can talk to people. But maybe as Christians, we just need to change the subject every once in a while. Because these Christians spoke to the Gentiles around them, and those Gentiles believed because of it. This is a great thing. You know, spreading the gospel or or functioning of a church depends on the labors of full-time preachers and missionaries. The ministry would be severely limited. But if every person who has trusted Christ as their Savior and Lord feels the obligation to share that message of power, if they have that obligation, then there's no telling what the, where the church would go, what the church would be in this community and in this world if every Christian were to speak out just normal in their normal days like these Christians did. If we're not sharing the gospel that we received, I would say that we have no right to call ourselves Christians because that is a fundamental principle of Christianity is that we're sharing this good news. A Chinese farmer had cataracts removed from his eye at a Christian mission. A few days later, the mission doctor looked out his window and saw this same farmer that he had uh, removed the cataracts with was holding holding a rope. And there were uh, literally a couple dozen people that were holding this rope as well that he was leading them. All of them were blind and were leading them to this doctor that had healed his eyes. That's how we should be. Since we have received the gift of God, since we call ourselves Christians, shouldn't we be the same way of taking our rope out into the world and saying, grab on. I'll take you to the Master. I'll show you where it is. Come on. I think that's a beautiful picture of what Christianity is, that we are speaking out, that people know us because we share the Gospel. But even more so, Christians should be known for their demonstration of grace. They stand out. Let's read in 22. When the church at Jerusalem heard what had happened, they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's blessing, he was filled with joy, and he encouraged the believers to stay true to the word. 
Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, strong in faith, and many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went out to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. When the church in Jerusalem got word what was going on in Antioch, they sent Barnabas to go check it out. Now, we've already met Barnabas uh, earlier. We know a little bit about him, uh, that he was a good man, as this, uh, as this says, this text says, but he's a very devout, he's someone that these apostles could trust. Go up to Antioch. Go check it out. So they sent Barnabas to go travel 350 miles to see what? How was he going to tell if God was really at work there? How do you know that these people are really Christians? That they're really seeing the light? How do you know? Well, it says Barnabas saw evidence of God's blessing, or as the NIV puts it, the grace of God. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Barnabas saw in the new believers at Antioch the grace of God. How do you see the grace of God in people? How do you see that? Is that something that you can just look at someone and say, ah, there's the grace of God? We talk about the grace of God often, but we don't always talk about how it manifests itself in his followers. Does a Christian really stand out that much that when Barnabas got there, he saw the grace of God? That these Christians were standing out so much from the world around them. Is it in attitude? Maybe it's in a smile. Maybe it's in the whole persona that a person gives that you can just see the grace of God in them. I wonder. I wonder what it is. Maybe it's a helping hand. Notice as well, though, in verse 26, they are first called Christians at Antioch. This is the first time that that word is used. In fact, through the study, that is not the preferred use, uh, uh, word use in the Bible. That's only used three different times, uh, to my knowledge, the word Christian. Believer is a whole lot more. Follower, disciple, those are used a whole lot more. Christian is not used very often, but that's the one that we take a hold of today. Are we Christians? What does that mean? Is that part of us? There are a couple definitions of the word Christian that I'd like to begin with here. Number one, Christian means to be Christ-like or to be a little Christ. That's a literal meaning of the word Christian, to be either Christ-like or a little Christ. Number two, it means Christian, Christian means to be, a part, be of the party of Christ or to be associated with him. You know, it's really sad to say that those who, there are some who claim the name of Jesus as Christian, but have no qualities of Christ. They claim that name, but they don't look like him at all. And it, this name implies to be Christ-like or like or little Christ, or at least be of the party of Christ. Matthew seven twenty one is pretty clear whenever it says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. You know, it's not enough just to say we're Christians. But if we truly are, I believe there will be overwhelming evidence in our lives. Again, with this name Christian. It's not something that the early believers there in Antioch got together and they, they, they got their men's business meeting together. All right, just picture this. Early Christians get their men's business meeting and said, we need to figure up a name. Because, you know, 
the names that we have, we need to unify together in one name because they're getting confused between people of the way, disciples. Let's figure up something. You know, and so they come together and they all vote. Hey, I like the name Christian. Well, that's not how it happened at all. It, the word Christian did not come by the believers. It was coined by the heathen population of Antioch. You see, they were trying to distinguish the followers of Christ between the followers of Caesar. I won't get into a whole lot of this, but a lot of the language was much the same. A lot of the language, the Greek language that we use for describing church, uh, ecclesia, the church gathering, meant the same thing. And it, had, it had a connotation in the, in the Roman world as well for Caesar. It was a good gathering. Or just take the word good news, euangelion in Greek. That word also was used by Caesar to be any proclamation that he gave. It was good news. So they were trying to distinguish between these groups of who really is this, who is this different group, this new group that has come up. So they nicknamed them Christians because that's what they believed. And at first it wasn't a good thing to be a Christian. This was not a good thing. It was uh, given to a group of people that were different. It was a name of contempt. But I'm sure they wore it, wore it with honor. How would you like whenever someone, someone is trying to criticize you and says, man, you're just like Christ. Oh, thanks. That's what I was hoping for. You're a Christian. These people were different. Something was different about them that they showed the grace of God. Their demonstration of grace set them apart. But that wasn't it. Christians should be known for their dedication to giving. Christians shell out. Let's read verse 27. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. This, this they did, entrusting their gift to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. You know, Christians should be people that give. That just seems like an understatement. That should be just part of our lives as Christians. Agabus comes and prophesies that a famine is going to hit, as it says, the entire Roman world. All right, did you catch that? The entire Roman world. Where is Antioch? It would be considered part of the Roman world. The entire Roman world is going to hit by, be hit by a famine. These Christians at Antioch then... Knowing this famine is going to come, what they think of first is not, oh, hey, let's gather up our storehouses together. Let's take care of ourselves. They said, hey, let's take care of the Christians in Jerusalem. Let's go send money their way. And then let's worry about us. Everyone gave as much as they could. I like that. They didn't just give some. Oh, we'll give you, you know, I've got 10 bucks in my wallet. Here you go. They gave as much as they could. 1 John 3, 17 and 18. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Another thing that's pretty remarkable about these Christians at Antioch that they gave to the Christians in Jerusalem was that the Christians in Antioch were Gentiles. The Christians in Jerusalem were Jews. 
That may not seem like a big deal, but for centuries, the Jews have looked down their noses at all Gentiles, calling them dogs or treating them lesser than anything. So these Christians that have just come to this faith, having had that history, said, you know what? We're not going to let that rule us. We're going to give back because they're going to be in need. We're all brothers together. I think that just is another definition of Christianity is that they didn't see any difference between them. Sure, they were Jews and we're Gentiles. Who cares? We're Christians. We're Christians together. It's also worth noting, I think, that the money flow. You know, normally money flows from the parent church to the mission churches. Which way was it here? It was, it was the mission church sending money back to the parent church that was needing help. Maybe we'll reach that day here in America whenever our mission efforts are starting to support us because we've lost sight or we're in hard times and they've got the means to do it. How cool would that be? How neat would that be that our mission works starts helping us if we're in need? But right now we're the ones helping and that's great. I believe God will bless those individuals who see a brother or sister in need and quietly, spontaneously, without fanfare, without looking at, you know, this attitude of look at me, they give to that brother or sister in need. That family, that fam- uh, the, the, sorry, the famine easily could have hit Antioch and wiped them out too, but they weren't concerned about that. They were concerned about their other Christian brothers and sisters. I think God will pour out his blessings on generous people. That doesn't give us the ticket that if I, if I pay some money now, if I'm generous now, then God will return to me twofold, and so I'll be that much richer. That's the wrong attitude t- towards it. It's about the giving, and it's about shelling out what we have to help those. Isn't that what Christianity is all about, though? Helping those in need? Pure and undefiled religion is this. You can probably finish the rest of it for me. Helping the orphans and the widows. Helping those who are in need. There's more to being a Christian than just having a name. A government official of India once said to some Christian leaders, if Christians would act like Jesus Christ, India would be at his feet. Isn't that harsh? He's got a good point, though. If Christians would actually act like Jesus Christ, would be a little Christ in this world, then I believe the world would be at Christ's feet because they would see something totally different and see something that they really want to be a part of. Would your friends and neighbors, what what would your friends and neighbors say about you? If you were on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you of being a Christian? You know, it's time for us to stop being satisfied with a low level of Christianity. You know, this idea that we can just sit on a nice pew, hear a, uh, a comforting sermon, eat a nice potluck, and go about our normal week as nothing ever changed. It's time for us to change that. If, if, if you're being put on trial for being a Christian, Would there be evidence? Maybe a little, but would there be enough to convict you without a doubt? Beyond a doubt, this person is a Christian. If not, then I think you you need this invitation. You need this invitation today, right now, because I know 
that that's where you want to be. That you want to be fully, your whole heart involved in this Christian, this Christianity business, being Christ-like. And if there wouldn't be enough evidence in your life, then I would love to meet you down on this front pew. And I would love to talk with you and make, come clean from that. But maybe you are. Maybe you're on that track and you can just encourage the rest of us to be more like Christ. If you're subject to this invitation, would you please come forward as we stand and sing?